Uh, we're going to continue um, in our study um, through Acts. So if you would, open up to chapter 13. And uh, we'll pick up, actually in verse 25 of chapter 12. Kind of a poor chapter break here. Let me begin in prayer, and then we'll, we'll take a look at this together this morning. Heavenly Father, we come together, we thank you, above all else, for your goodness and kindness, graciousness shown to us, granted to us through Christ your Son, our Lord and Savior. And as we're gathered here this morning, or may we grow deeper, richer understanding with regard to the purpose of the church, uh, the blessing of the church, the privilege of the church, um, and gospel proclamation. As recipients, Lord of that truth, uh, may we be um, inspired and encouraged to continue to proclaim that same truth. Pray that you'll bless your people this morning as uh, they are at home getting ready for worship. I pray that you'll fill the house. Fill us with your spirit as we worship together this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And in verse 25 of chapter 12, the word of God reads, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mannion, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But... Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and he said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This ends the reading of God's word. How long have we been in Acts? Anybody know? I don't know. Are you enjoying it? It's pretty much the same faces, so I'm glad to hear that. 
Well, in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, um, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The coming of Jesus was a search and save mission. It wasn't a seek and destroy mission, but a seek and save mission. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The mission of God to seek and save lost people is to seek and save them from the wrath that is to come, as we read in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10. It was a mission delegated to the apostles as a result of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, which in turn makes the entire church of Jesus Christ ambassadors for Christ. We're all ambassadors for Christ. So he is sending, I mean, from this time on to this very day and beyond until he returns, he's sending, pursuing, searching, and saving. He saves and he sends his people out. So the the Lord is never passive. He's never indecisive. He's never um, in the maintenance mode. God is never simply coasting or drifting. He's never disengaged from the happenings of people's, cultures, places, or things. In Acts is, is a narrative of the ongoing work of the gospel, the mission um, of the gospel, as more and more peoples of the world um, are being gathered in um, to, to the elect fold um, of, of God. And and Acts is the story of of how the early church really understood the words, as the Father has sent me, Jesus said, so I send you. That's that's what we're witnessing here. That's what we've been witnessing for however many months we've been at this. It's simply the account of how, how the vertical sending of God in the mission of Jesus moves out horizontally to his people and through his people uh, to do the very same thing, to carry on uh, the message um, in, the mis- in the mission uh, of the Son of God. So uh, it is really one monolithic movement. It's, it's just one uh, familial, blood-bought movement um, of God by way of the uh, Holy Spirit. But, not without opposition. Amen? Never without opposition. Uh, back in chapter 12 last week, uh, it was Ryan who did it, I think. We saw that, that Herod lays violent hands on some of the church. He killed James, the son of Zebedee, John's brother. Um, also had Peter arrested. Peter was released by angelic force. Right? Imagine that. Be locked up, dead asleep. He's pretty content in a prison cell. And he was awakened by... An angel, he's led out to John Mark's house, actually John Mark's mother's house. Um, and Herod, in response the next morning to the guards who were stationed there, he had them all what? Put to death. Well, it was shortly after that that uh, Herod went to Caesarea. And he was sitting there in his royal robes. He gave this... Uh, this oration, and and received the people's praise. Um, And according to Josephus, uh, the historian, 
he made quite a, quite a showing on that day. And what that was was a big celebration um, that actually was celebrating the, the founding of, of Caesarea, that great uh, coastal city. Um, so he put on a series of shows um, in the amphitheater there. Been to that amphitheater. If you've been to Israel, you've been there probably. Beautiful place, still a beautiful place. So he's put on um, these shows throughout this festive time. And then early in the morning, Josephus writes, uh, when the sun shone brightly on the stage, he, he came out wearing this special costume and it was woven together with pure silver. So Josephus says that with the sun shining on this garment, it gleamed, it was so magnificent that it manifested not only a sense of royalty, but to many onlookers, the very manifestation of deity. So all the people went wild, they declared him as a god, and you know a similar thing has happened to Peter, as will happen to Paul, um, and has happened to, to angels, such as in the book of Revelation, um, all of whom said, don't do that, because they were servants of God, they were children of God, and angels of God, they said, don't do that. Um, they, were, they were sternly rebuked for doing that. But that wasn't the response of Herod. Instead, he basks in the glory of being identified as a god and soon after killed over dead. It's a judgment of God. Now, Luke, he's a physician. He, he doesn't give any insight as to how he died or what he died of. Josephus, uh, the first century historian, um, doesn't write what it was he, he died of. But there are some historians over time who have studied all these accounts, and, and they most commonly reason that, that his appendix burst. Um, others say that he was a victim of arsenic poisoning, but, uh, you know, whatever the, the cause was, the secondary cause, the primary cause was the judgment of God. That was the primary cause. The judgment of God upon this ruler who, who was assaulting the infant church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with all that in mind, we know that God does not do things without means. Amen? He does not do things without means. Meaning, he doesn't just simply reach down and accomplish his purposes, you know, with a magic wand. He uses people as a means to his end. He did then, and he does um, to this very day. And, and he does it by way of circumstances and, and by way of events, all according to his sovereign framework carried out by way of, of his providential will. It's always been that way. Yes, he, he intervenes and does miraculous type of things, but typically the Lord moves in this way, by way of his providence, using people as a means to his end. So as he does, he, it's, it's very complex. Um, most often we don't know what's really going on uh, in, until we have you know, some hindsight and we begin to see, you know, look at your own Christian life, right? How God moved and how he orchestrated you know, to bring you to saving faith. A seed sown here, watered here. And then he brings forth the harvest in this particular day, and he grows you in grace, and he grows you in knowledge. You begin to see what your gifts are. You utilize your gifts. You make use of your gifts. You know it's not in your own strength. You know it's not in your own power. It's all by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
and there's fruit for his glory. And not only your good, but the good of the church. Amen? We've been studying that in Romans. And that's what we're seeing here. Now, in his providence, there, there, you know, sometimes it's a difficult circumstances, a desperate situation. But, but he does his work through tools. And in the case of missionary work, his main tool is his church. This is what we're seeing unfold. He could have used angels, sounding alarm from heaven, proclaiming gospel truth with voices from the sky, but he doesn't do that. He uses those made in his image. Angels are not made in the image of God. Only humans are made in the image of God. And that begins what is referred to as the missionary era of the church. And chapter 13 actually is known by theologians as just that. It's referred to as the missionary era of the church. Now, outlined through our studies in Acts, we see a very diverse group of people. I think we'd all agree with that, amen? And they make up the early church. And here in chapter 13, we see five men. Okay, five men of God who characterized the cultural and ethnic diversity of Antioch. Notice in verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manion, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, first of all, by the way, there's a lot of Antiochs in the New Testament era. We'll read of another one next week. Um, Antioch and Pisidia. This is Antioch and Syria. Okay, you can just look on your little map in the back of your Bible and you'll see uh, where those are located. This one is in Syria. Uh, the focus now, as I think we're well aware, um, has shifted. Our attention has shifted through this narrative of Acts because up until this point, the focus has been on a city and a person. The city was Jerusalem. The main person has been Peter, for the most part. And all of a sudden, it's no longer Jerusalem and Peter, but it's Antioch and Saul, who will be referred to here, also known as Paul. God bless you. So this, this here then in the first verse, um, provides us a big picture of what the church looks like. It's very diverse. That's, what the way the, that's the way the church should look like. I can't stand it when I go into places like the Midwest and it's like all like really tight white people. You know? Or, or in the South, in some places where it's like all black people. Or whatever. And I have a friend of mine. Black friend of mine. We've had this plan for some time. We talk about it. Whether or not we ever do it, I don't know. But we want to travel the United States through summer, and we want to visit churches in the Midwest and the North and down in the South. We want to go to black churches and white churches. And in the black churches, I want to walk in first and see how I'm received and then him, him, have him come in after. And then I want to take him to those places in the North and Midwest and have him walk in first where it's all white tight people and see how they respond to him and how they receive him. And then I'll walk in as his friend. And then maybe we'll write a book about it. (laughs) 
But anyway, the, the, the diversity of the church is, is a beautiful representation of what it is to be. Because that's what it is. Amen? And we see it right here. Notice Barnabas. He appears first. Probably because at this point he was the leader of this group. He was a Levite from Cyprus. A man, chapter 7, full of faith. Full of the spirit. That's Barnabas, son of encouragement. Great heart for giving. And then there's Simeon with a Latin nickname called Niger meaning black-skinned, undoubtedly from Africa. And the consensus, the consensus of theologians um, throughout time is that this Simeon is the Simeon who, who was called upon, who was drafted to carry the cross of Jesus Christ when he could bear the weight no more. Imagine the testimony of that brother of his encounter with Jesus on the road to Calvary. So there's Barnabas, there's, there's Simeon called Niger, there's Lucius of Cyrene, that's North Africa, who first preached to the Gentiles in Antioch, back in chapter 11. And then you, you have this interesting character, Mannion, a, a member of Herod. This is the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. He was a member of his household, uh, a foster brother, Perhaps. He, we don't know, theologians and historians don't know exactly, but one thing they do know is that he grew up in the halls of power and privilege afforded to those within. And he's become a believer and a leader in the church. That's diversity. Amen? And then you have Saul, who's listed last. The highly trained Pharisaic rabbi who was also born a Roman citizen, which was a huge privilege. He didn't buy his way in to citizenship. He was born a citizen from Tarsus. Now his name meant something in the early church, didn't it? It was a terrifying name, actually. The church was terrified of Saul of Tarsus, who has also been converted. Ten years ago, went away and is back. So a decade ago, or thereabout, he was converted and went away to the desert. And he becomes the primary teacher um, of the church. So the, the social, geographic, and even racial variety of people in this count, reveals how the Spirit of God has moved rapidly since the day of Pentecost, more than a decade before, moving over a very broad geographic area. And not only has the gospel spread to and through those areas, but the Holy Spirit has taken men from those areas and he's placed them in leadership. And that's what verse 1 reveals for us. And this is for the next stage of the expansion um, of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. These men are different ages, different personalities, different ethnicities. I'm sure they had different likes and different dislikes. 
And they're gathered from the, as it's called, the four corners of the earth. That's the church. Amen? Amen. That's the church. And they, have, they share one common thread, and it's faith and trust in the head of the church. It's Christ. Faith and trust. They've been regenerated. They've been born again. We share this in common. We all share the same thing in common in Christ. We come from different backgrounds. There's certain things I like, you don't like, you like, I don't like. Nevertheless, we have a great commonality. We are one in Christ. Red and yellow, black and white. They're all precious in his sight. Amen? Amen. That's the way the church should look. That's the way I want this church to look. Different giftings for the glory of God, for the benefit of his people. So our church should appear as as, as a patchwork quilt, amen? As a mosaic of of people. So there you have it, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Holy Spirit speaks to them probably through you know, one of the prophets, whoever that was, who had that gift. Set apart for me, says Barnabas and Saul. And then verse 3, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now here, here they were purposefully fasting in order to spend more time in prayer seeking God's directive will for their lives at this time setting aside physical needs for spiritual ones and here here, here we see two things combined worship and service worship and service they must go together beloved worship Service. They're always linked together because work without worship leads to legalistic, self-centered service. You know, you go off into your own direction. You're not, not all at all interested in what God is actually calling us to do. It's just to be about be, being busy. Got to be busy. But on the other hand, worship without work leads to what the Bible refers to as a form of godliness but not experiencing the power thereof. I'm just worshiping the Lord. I'm just a worshiper. and never do anything. Worship, service are linked together in the Bible. And we're not going to be a healthy church if, if we don't worship, and we'll also be unhealthy if we don't work it will only be half of what we're called to be. So the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. They laid their hands on them and they sent them off. This is a commissioning, a commissioning of these men, setting them apart for this particular work. And here's what happens in commissioning or you know, the symbolic uh, um, physical act of laying hands. What, what they're doing is recognizing their giftedness recognizing God's call on them, symbolically saying, we go with you, we support you, we encourage you, we'll be with you in prayer, we'll be with you in in financial support, typically. And notice, did you notice this? It's not a matter of selecting those who are the least busy in serving. 
You know, there's no going after the ones who rarely show up for worship. You know, who could we get for this task? Well, you know, so-and-so, they don't hardly ever come to church. Let's go after them, right? And say, hey, there's a great opportunity for you to finally serve. It just doesn't, you just don't see it that way. Those chosen are those who are the most engaged, those who are the most diligent, those who are typically already busy serving. You know, I think it's well noted in the church, if you want to get something done, ask the people that are the most busy. That's who I ask, typically. (laughs) Because it will get done. So, they laid their hands on them, and that's a symbol used to this day. There's no power in the hands of men. Amen? Amen? Like these TV crazies. You know, in the name of Jesus, and they slap it on the forehead, and they start jolting around. It's a big show. If in case you don't know, it's a show. It's lunacy. This represents the blessing of God. It represents something of the anointing, the anointing of his power. It represents the touch of God in separating this man Barnabas, separating this man Saul to, to this work. It's, it's a sign of consecration. Symbolizing the real touch that's needed. And God separating them for the task. You know, ministers, I mean, you know, we can commission people or license people or ordain people uh, and and send people off. We have no ability to anoint anybody. Zero. It's God's doing. You know, too many times, you know, men will go into ministry training full of zeal who lack the gifts and lack the personality for the ministry, for the very work that they've trained for. And they get out there and, and, and realize it was just all zeal. And they, they may be sincere, but they lack the gifts, they lack the calling, and if you lack those, you're going to lack the ability to carry out the task. And, and then you're going to be in trouble. So, verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. That's John Mark. He's a young guy. We'll learn more about him next time. So they got a ship. They took off. Paul and Barnabas for Cyprus. They had this helper, young John Mark. Now, Cyprus in those days was was like the Hawaii or or the Bahamas uh, of the ancient world. A place of retreat, near-perfect climate, the place you would want to go on holiday. Right? This is also Barnabas' home, so he would know the layout of the land. So here then, this little trio set sail, and they make their way here. Uh, this little island of Cyprus is 30 
you know, it's 30 to 50 miles wide, 110 miles long or so. And uh, they make their way there. There's two important cities at this time. I'm on that island. Uh, one in the southeast corner, one in the northwest corner. Um, Salamis and, and, pa- and Paphos. So here they're sent off to basically conquer the island for Christ. Amen? Gospel. Now, Salamis was a, a trade city, mainly a trade city, located on the southeast corner of the island. It was the largest city in Cyprus. It had a great Jewish population, major Jewish population. So, therefore, there would have been a lot of synagogues. Paul's custom will become exactly what he's doing here. He'll go in and he'll preach in the synagogues, Jesus Christ and him crucified. From the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. Amen? It's being written. It's being written. So that was his custom. And the Jews would have had that spiritual background of the hope of a Messiah. So they begin there. And since, you know, Paul, Saul was a Jew, he would have uh, major access, especially as a former leader in the Sanhedrin, having come up under the tutelage of, of Gamaliel, who they all would have known by way of reputation, and his pedigree. Paul's pedigree would, would get him in, would gain him access. So you may make use of it. And notice Mark went along as a helper. That's very important. It's a much needed role. If you're going to send men off, if you're going to send people off into the mission field, um, you need helpers. So it's a good reminder of team effort. Amen? Team effort. When there's new fields to be conquered. John Mark's young, he's in training, and he's going to get the, the real experience of, of the rough cut world. It's even more rough cut when, when you go out into it and proclaim the gospel. Now, verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jeshua, or Bar-Yeshua. Literally means son of Jesus. Bar, son of Jesus. And notice Luke further describes him as a false prophet. He was an attendant of the Roman official there in Asia Minor who functioned as the governor of the island of Cyprus. Okay, this is under Imperial Rome's rule. So, he was responsible directly to the Roman Senate, this, this leader, this Roman official. And he's, notice how he's described in verse 7. So he's with the proconsul, Sergius Polus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So he gets word that this Barnabas, had been, Barnabas and Saul are there. He summons them to come to him, a leader in Rome, to, to hear them, to hear the word. So here's a great opportunity to speak to the head of the government of this island. So it was a glorious day up to this point. Glorious opportunity. It's beginning to unfold. They're going to conquer Gentile territory for Christ. That's what they're thinking. And then now what's going to happen? With every opportunity you will inevitably have opposition. Here it is again. 
How many times have we seen this thus far? Great opportunity, great opposition. And this is an opportunity met by Satan head on through this sorcerer, through the, through the soothsayer. Notice verse 8. But Elimas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. That's how Satan works, right? Two ways, from the outside and from the inside. Okay, now this guy was a Jew. And what he did is he, he provided like supernatural insight, at least in their mind, by, by way of his sorcery. So, you know, pagan leaders in that day would want those kind of, of uh, magicians, the magus, the sorcerers, um, to, to grant them insight, to grant them wisdom. So with fear now of, of losing his job and influence over this Roman official, because if this guy comes to faith, he loses his job. Right? He begins to interfere with the speaking ministry. Most likely of Barnabas and Paul here. Now, we've already read a parallel account of this. Remember Simon of Samaria? They met Simon the sorcerer in Samaria. Both these guys were Jewish. Both Simon and Bar-Jesus are demon-possessed mediums. Pretty much is what they are. Demon-possessed mediums. A medium is a contact. A contact to the spiritual dark world. That's what a medium is. That's what a medium does. You're tarot card readers. That's all they are. So he's a sorcerer. And, And sorcerer your translation may say, or a magician, comes from the Greek word magus, from which we we get magic. Now, initially, the word, you know, it doesn't have to mean anything evil in, in its full sense. As a matter of fact, it's used in a positive way, translated in a positive way back in Matthew 2, when it talks about the the magicians or the magi coming to visit Jesus, bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Same word for magi, used in a good sense. Those were good men. They were um, astronomers from Persia. That's what the magi were, astronomers. And the magi became the title of a person who does that. They're Persian scientists, basically, is what they were. But some of the Persian science, over time, degenerated into the occult, where astronomy became astrology. And that's what these guys are. So here he's, uh, he is uh, invading are trying to invade the work of God by way of gospel proclamation to this this Roman governor um, who works for him. And then in verse 9, in response, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil. 
you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Okay, notice, but Saul, who also is called Paul, Saul of Tarsus will become known as Paulus, meaning small one, Paulus. It's the Greek name for this Jew. Which is a sign of his ministry and the work that he'll do with the Gentile world. Changes his name. God changes his name. Or to to use the Greek form of his name. Paulus. Notice, this bar Jesus means son of Jesus, right? Basically, Paul's saying, you're no son of Jesus. Jesus was a common name, name, by the way, in that day. You're no son of Jesus. You're a son of the devil. <laughs> you're a son of Satan, just like Jesus did, right? With the Pharisees. Abraham's our father. You know, your father's the devil, okay? That's who your father is, is the devil. Because if you don't believe in me, you worship the devil. And you know that? All people who proclaim to be who believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in the true Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus as who he is and who he claimed to be. They worship the devil. At the end of the day, they worship the devil. Probably not the best means of evangelism, calling your friends who don't believe devil worshipers, but in the end, that's, that's all it really is. He says, you're, you're, you're a son of the devil. You're an enemy of all righteousness. He says, the Lord of the hand is upon the Lord of the, the hand of the Lord is upon you. But in a very different way, amen. The hand of the Lord, not like Barnabas and Saul, was upon him. But in a way that will blind you, make you unable to see the sun for a time. So here he's roaming around, you know, bumping into stuff, you know, asking for people to lead him by the hand. His judgment. So Satan loses this battle too. The gospel wins. Blinded. That's one way to silence opposition, isn't it? I've often wished in times of opposition in the ministry that I had this gift. (laughs) To be quite honest with you. (laughs) Never panned out. So, So after all of that, verse 12, better wrap this up. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now notice this. Had he said, and he believed being astonished at the miracle of blindness, you know, then we'd be likely to say, well, hey, it's not a true conversion. There's no proof it's a true conversion because after all, many people in Jesus' ministry believed in the miracles, but they didn't believe. Remember? Jesus said it to the, to, to the, to the mob who followed him around in, in uh, John 6. You seek me. Not because you saw the signs and what? Believe, but because you got your gut filled yesterday when I fed you all and you're back for more. You're coming to get foddered up is really the language he used there. 
And uh, in, in John 2, we read, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. John 2.24, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man, and it was unbelief in him. Did they ever doubt the signs? No one ever doubted the miracles of Jesus. The Pharisees never doubted the the signs, miracles, and wonders of Jesus. They simply attributed that power to Satan. There was no doubt about the miracles. But signs always point to something greater than themselves, and the signs were to point to his deity. Instead of bowing down before him as the Son of God, the God-man, They accused him of being a blasphemer. So signs don't save anybody in and of themselves. Notice it doesn't say that he was astonished at the miracle. It says he was astonished at the doctrine. That's the word teaching, doctrine. You get that? The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord through the proclamation of these men. He believed. Power proclamation. So here then, Paul's ministry turns toward the Gentile world, and this man, Paul, will now take center stage in the narrative here of the book of Acts. He is the one who will go on to write 2 Corinthians of shipwrecks, beatings, scourgings, stonings, being left for dead, imprisonments. After all, what was his call to ministry? Jesus said to Ananias, and, you know, go to the street called Straight, for there's a man there praying. His name is Saul, for I must show him the things he must Suffer for my name's sake. So this Paul, 2 Corinthians, who writes of the shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments, also writes in Romans 8, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So here now, the, the baton of focus, really, in the book of Acts, moves from Peter to Paul. We're seeing the beginning of it right there. Amen? Amen? Lord, thank you for the time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the ministry of, of Paul and, and, and Barnabas. These other men that were with them and, and served alongside of them, the, 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 the Simons, Lord, the Nigers, all of these faithful men um, that that you called to yourself, gifted, and even uh, with the own tension that would arise within these circles, Lord, uh, your word was proclaimed and uh, the people you intended to save came to faith and the same gospel 
that saved them, saved others, also saved us, and will go on to save others. So help us, Lord, to embrace this truth and proclaim this truth, not in our own might and our strength, but by the power of the Spirit. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.